You're listening to a Radio Stockdale podcast. Podcasts that are inspiring, interactive, and feature various discussions of leadership, ethics, and law. Welcome to Philosophy at the Movies, a podcast where we discuss themes in the history of philosophy through the medium of films. I'm Alex Baker, and joining me as always... Sean Baker. And today's topic is the 2021 film, Twelve Mighty Orphans. So this film just came out last year, and for any recent film, I always just want to give a spoiler warning. I know this was a straight-to-on-demand film. I don't think it got a big theatrical release, if any, so I'm not sure if a lot of people have seen it. So if you haven't, we're going to spoil it. There's your warning. So this uh, tells the story of the... Masonic Home Orphanage at Fort Worth, Texas in the 1930s. This is based on the book, I think also called Twelve Mighty Orphans, by Jim Dent, Mm -hmm. whose other book, The Junction Boys, we talked about a long time ago. And this is if NFL Draft is coming along, so we've decided to do a football movie for the draft. So we figured we'd do this one, and it's recent, so it just came out. But anyway. Fair warning, it has nothing to do with the pros except tangentially. Yeah, there's right? a couple of... We'll and talk about we'll that talk later. We'll talk about that. But, yeah, this um, is high school football. Yes. A high, an orphanage that runs a high school football program. Mm-hmm. Um, the head coach is a man named Rusty Russell. He was already a professional by this time. Now, the one of the things the movie got wrong was um, it shows that his first year at the orphanage is 1938. Yeah. He had been there since 1927. Yes, and he, he went till uh, 41, if I recall. Yeah, 42, and he uh, yeah. went to Highland Park, which anybody yeah. knows anything about Texas football, that's one of the big high school powerhouses. Yeah. For example, uh, Matthew Stafford recently, yep. but also Bobby Lane, and yep. I also believe Doak Walker. Yes, so Doak three, Walker. So three yes. Detroit Lions. So yeah. Yeah. if you're a football player in Highland Park, you better be hoping you don't get <laughs> stuck with them. But yeah. He goes there, but before and he... He actually coached at SMU, too, And well. SMU with... Yeah. Uh, at first as an assistant and then head coach, but as assistant, he was with Doak Walker when Walker won the Heisman right, for SMU. Right. So there's your backstory. But he takes this team, and one of the things that gets the – it's not quite right. It's sort of like they're – you know, it's your typical sports movie where they're this ragtag. They barely yes. have a football field. But at by 1938, they were already pretty respected. Almost when he, if you read the book, when he joined, they it was almost like immediate success. Yeah. They but they weren't at a major level. They were at these yeah. mid levels. They were playing very well, and eventually they petitioned to yeah. play with the big boys like the Highland Parks, yeah. and eventually they got accepted. So, yeah, but the two fought. divisions were back in those days were the B and A, right? And uh, he won a championship in that B division with this team after several years it is one thing about this movie it telescopes things it's incredibly pretty much it just, all happens yeah, in one the 1938 year season. including players that in real life were spread over that decade plus history yeah. of um rusty russell's team but you know still i think in terms of you know it is a movie you have to keep in mind it is not documentary um even in its own terms, even though it telescopes a lot, and there's some aspects of it I think are a little bit corny or formulaic, I still think it works. I really enjoy this film. I 
think so too for the most part. I'm I probably won't be as high on it as you are, but there are I mean because it's the 1938 season. The first game they play uh, was it Polytechnic? Yes. And they're the you know they're their typical antagonists, and every time their coach was on the screen, I was rolling my eyes. <laughs> yeah. He had this ridiculous Mo Howard haircut, <laughs> yeah. he had sunglasses. Yeah, I mean his he, all he needed was a mustache to twirl around. That's how yeah. corny he was. Yeah, he but. was corny, and uh, the um, the guy that is the head of the school, I forget the title. But, uh, I'm just going to call him Newman because Newman. that's the same it, it, actor from Seinfeld. That, right, the guy that played Newman and was also famously in Jurassic Park. It's as a stick, the bad stupid. Guy. Yeah, yeah, and <laughs> you know, it's almost like, hey, if you want, if you want a sleazeball bad guy, you got what's his name? Wayne you, Knight. You have to hire Wayne Knight, and he seems to relish those roles. Yeah, he does he's a great the job. With head it. of the school, and he's very abusive. He's yes. very liberal with his use of the paddle to punish the yes. kids yeah. and in this part in the book it, this does i mean he did whip the uh, paddle the kids and the kids did not like him yes. but there was like he was conspiring with the yeah head coach none of that happened he conspiring was actually very with, with the head coach of polytechnic, polytechnic to complete get fiction yeah because he complete was happy fiction, with yeah. what the football team was doing it was bringing him in he was happy with that he wasn't trying to get yeah. um hey, you get Russell a rivalry out. it helps everybody else, yeah you know? so I mean, because in real life, he actually died, drowned in this accident or something. Yeah, they, I see that they made a choice to, instead of, and I kind of disagree with this, as a matter of fact. And You know, you said I, I'm going to be all gung-ho for the film when you're not, but I've got significant reservations about it. But like I said, I still did enjoy it. And one of the things I think they should have kept was his actual fate. Um, I think it because uh, yeah, from what I've read, I have not had time to read the Dent book, but from what I've read is when this guy did drown, he was taking kids from the Masonic home out to, for a swim. And when he did drown, he was so universally reviled by the uh, student population there that they did. They were glad he was gone. And one of them even said, oh, my goodness, there is a God. I mean, yeah. you know, um, so they should have kept that, I think. They didn't have to quite make it so... Stereotypically yeah, villainous. Like he's, he's, you know, he's used exploiting them for child labor, which I, I forget. I don't remember them being part of like a ink printing press. They did yeah. work like around the farm, like they would milk cows. Yes. Like kids right. in prestigious positions at the orphanage yeah. were called milk sops. And it, that it was, was almost big, like they were trying to be too uh, Charles Dis, Dick, Dickens esque. Yeah, you know, Dickensian. I, it was a little too much. I, yeah. I agree with that. And. You know, in general, I, I I think it probably it it would have served the story better if they didn't shoot for a feature length film and they shot for maybe a series, maybe five or six episodes. I, I would have liked to seen that and seen the development of the team more as it's described in the Dent book because you have the more realistic ups and downs of a football team and the ups and downs of a coach. Uh, who doesn't quite get to that championship yeah. game. And they do capture that, again, in a largely fictional last game in this yeah. film. And they, it was um, numerous times that yeah. they got very close. They would always win regionals, but whenever you, they get to state, they yeah. couldn't Could quite make quite it. quite get it. And I would have liked to have seen that played out more. Uh, only, if only because that's the way reality is for most people, you know, in... in uh, uh, competitive athletics and it, it would be interesting to see the character study of rusty russell and the kids and how they respond to that 
and not to mention the administration of the Masonic school, which I think if, you know, I'm no historian or expert, I think the movie did a little bit of a disservice to by uh, portraying that one particular guy as so thoroughly uh, villainous. You know, yeah, the Masonic yeah. school did a lot of good for a lot of people. And that, that place was up and running well into the 2000s, if yeah, I recall correctly. Yeah, 2005, I believe, is when it yeah. closed down. So I, I kind of think it did a little bit of a disservice to that institution. Maybe, you know, but anyway, I, I'm, I'm kind of, I feel like I'm nitpicking a little bit because it doesn't set out to be a historical document, even though it is based on mm-hmm. a piece of historical uh, research in Jim Dent's work. Yeah, now you are on the side of the audiences because looking at, you know, Rotten Tomatoes, which isn't the end-all be-all as far as if a movie's good or not, but it's always a good judge to see how audi- critics like the movie and how audiences like the movie. Yeah. Now, it didn't get, like, horrible ratings. It's at 64% for critics, so that's well over that's half. Okay. yeah. But audiences are, like, almost unanimous. It's, like, in the 90s. 90s? So audiences, I thought it was in the 80s. Wow. So that's audience servers are much yeah. more receptive of this movie so it is that classic are critics just too cynical and audiences appreciate it more like i said i thought this movie was okay but i really appreciated the book and jim dent's inspiration for the novel was he was his book was he was watching an nfl films about hardy brown he was he's one of he's the main almost the main kid in the movie and he became a feared linebacker in the nfl for a number of years and they were interviewing him on nfl films which program he was watching and he kept talking about the home taught me how to play football and that's what jim dent went on this quest you know to research the book and speaking of nfl films i think the format which this would work best would be an NFL films type of documentary, like they do a football life recently yeah. with all these different famous NFL coaches yeah. and players. That would be perfect for this. Yeah, I think as a movie, it's fine. But like, even they even try to do some documentary because they have the doc played by Martin Sheen. Mm-hmm. He's doing all this narration. I felt it was intrusive. I felt if you made it like two, like maybe a two three part special, like we talked about with Five Came Back. I think. Yeah. That's the part. That's the format. I think would work best for something. I, I agree like this. with that. And you could even go as far as making it a docudrama. That's um, kind of one one particular docudrama that kind of came to mind for me simply because I use it in one of my classes uh, every other semester. Is one that is based on the end of the Pacific War. Uh, it's called Hiroshima, and it's a long, long. Uh, it's three three parts, but it's roughly three and a half to four hours long total. And the interesting thing about that one, and I think they could have this story could have uh, profited from the same approach. Uh, the interesting thing about that one is they have you know a cast of actors acting out the main characters: uh, Harry Truman, Henry Stimson. Um, uh, on the Japanese side, you see Emperor Hirohito, you see Prime Minister Suzuki and General Anami. And uh, interspersed with this story of the two sets of decision makers dealing with the closing of that war, uh, you have documentary footage, you have interviews of people that were actually involved in the events, be it on Okinawa fighting that battle or people involved in Los Alamos or people involved in the uh, diplomatic corps 
Um, and it's very effectively interwoven. Both of these things are very effectively interwoven with each other. The, the script is pretty good. The drama is very good. The actors are capable. It's a joint Canadian-Japanese uh, production, too. So you, you had uh, uh, the uh, 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 keen interest on both sides, I think, to get it right and get the history right. And largely they do. There's parts of it I quibble with, but uh, in general, it's pretty darn good. Um, and the end result is a, a pretty powerful film. Um, and it, it highlights, I think, well, uh, it's, it's a good tool to highlight the uh, ethical and leadership dilemmas that um, uh, uh, President Truman and his cabinet faced. Um, I think this film could have benefited from a similar approach. Now, having said that, I realize that a lot of the main characters, by the time they would have made this film, were probably deceased or passed on or very elderly. Um, but um, I, I think it's too bad this wasn't done earlier because somebody did buy the rights to this book fairly early after publication. And it might have been in that window that where they could have done that. But like you said, somewhere between three and six episodes, docudrama, where you have that mixture of typical Hollywood film actors playing the roles interspersed with these interviews and so forth. Um, especially when you want to get into the psychology of Rusty Russell and um, some of the players, especially Hardy Brown, um, that would have been, I think, a very powerful film. And it's kind of a shame they didn't consider that. Yeah, because what is so interesting about this, when I was, especially when I was reading the book, was this was a nationwide phenomenon, not just in the state of Texas. Now, in the movie, even Franklin Delano Roosevelt is taking note. He had no idea. Yeah. I don't think oh, he, he, he never. He was aware of it, but he wasn't going out of his way yeah. to. He wasn't intervening, intervening on their behalf, on, and I don't think the, he was the, listening to a radio broadcast no, of the game. No, but, but he um, was aware of it. It right. was getting like they talked about, like they're getting letters across the country from wh how much inspiring. Because the big thing is, yeah. not only are they an orphanage, but they've mentioned they're undersized. Yeah. So Russell has to create the spread offense. Yes. He has to get them all out in the football field. He's at a time when this was, you know, still a three yards in a cloud of dust. Let's yeah. just run it up the middle. He's passing the ball. He's yeah. moving the ball around. He's doing option plays. Yeah, and all that's accurate. Oh, yeah, that's, and that, that's the stuff I really liked. Rusty I always, I always loved was seeing a that. Very old. innovative coach, and he was one of the earliest, uh, if not the earliest, exponent of what's now called the spread offense. And you're right; it was because uh, typically the the players he was playing against, going back to our uh, our earlier film uh, having to do with basketball recruiting. Remember, we had talked about Texas mm -hmm. football recruiting. Well, it was alive and kicking back then too, and people, mm -hmm. all these powerhouses like highland park right and polytechnic was a powerhouse during the day too and they went out of their way to go recruit those players so they got the cream of the crop for that kind of football they were playing back in the day you're set you're right very They're tight orphans, formations so. and run the freaking ball and keep it simple stupid and that worked and he realized man my little guys that's why they mm -hmm. called them mites by the way um, my little guys aren't going to be able to handle this. So I've got to figure out a, a, a strategy to counteract that. And you're right. It was spread the line out and run to the edges and then eventually incorporate a passing game. And they, they to their credit, the movie gets that right. Yeah. And be, being the scrappy little underdogs, I mean, this was at the time of the Depression. So 
a lot of people latched on to that, especially in Texas. Not only was the depression hitting them, but the yeah. dust bowl, which was oh, yeah. hurting a lot of farmers. So seeing the you know these underdogs, they're having to deal with the big guys. They're undermanned, but you know yeah. they have no parents, so there's this abandonment almost. And but yeah. they're still fighting through this adversity. Yeah, and, and I, I think the the film taps into that that excitement too. People live vicariously and kind of hopefully through the underdog story. Um, and another thing I think they tap into very well is the difference in the approach to coaching and running the football team that you had between the, yeah, slightly villain-esque polytechnic coach uh, who's more in line of maybe Bear Bryant. I see in your notes you, 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 yeah. you kind of... I think we don't know how important. he treats his players, but he well, does Well, that's it. that one scene where he basically tells that guy, you know... He, he gives him instructions. I forget what it is. To hit him low. Go, hit him low or whatever. And it and, causes his uh, right. bone to stick out of his leg, a gruesome injury, yeah. which ends his career. Yeah. And, he, yeah. and you know, he, he's he's more clearly in that line of uh, uh, less paternalistic coaches, right? Um, whereas uh, Rusty Russell um, is, he's more of a mentor than a coach. And one yeah. thing they don't talk about in the movie is because this is an orphanage, so he's running football programs even for the non-high school kids. So he's teaching yes. them as young as like six years yes, old yes, how to play true. football. So that's he's true. By the time like Hardy Brown, because they show him he comes up, which was true, he came out right after his father was murdered and his mother abandoned him. Yeah, that happened when he was five years old, not when he was a teenager. Right. So by the time he joined, he was already well familiar with Russell and been yeah. in his football program. He's just waiting for that high school age. Yeah, so you, you can see, and the, the, you can see again. I think it reflects a little bit unfairly on the Masonic home. They took that mentoring uh, role and mission very seriously. And the great thing about Rusty Russell is he did too, and he stayed there for fourteen, fifteen years. Took it very seriously. Not quite sure why he pan- moved on. I think um, in the book it says the money was just too good to ignore, for, particularly with Highland Park. Highland Park, yeah. But I wonder, you know, I don't know. I wonder if he missed that. You know, because at Highland Park it's going to be more of a typical football experience. There's going to be less of that familiarity with those players, literally from grade one up until high school. Um, he, I wonder if he had a little less fulfillment there. I don't know the question to that. Uh, and uh, ditto with his SMU experience. I think you always, of all the times he spent, he always appreciated his time with the home yeah. the most. I, I, I think so. So, um, and, and they do a good job, I think, of uh, portraying the quality of his the paternalistic, and I don't mean that in a negative way, quality of his leadership, not to mention his wife. Now, it's not altogether clear if she taught there. It says in the movie she did, but I guess I saw some... Um, yeah, it's not... She definitely served in some capacity yeah. there, but I'm not sure if she was a specific teacher. Yeah, but she did play a mother role. That's yes, the key she thing. did so care for a lot of the kids. A lot of those kids and was very concerned for their welfare. Um, they do a great job of doing that. That's a, it's an interesting uh, dichotomy, you could say, between that and the, the kind of the kind of experiences we saw in Hoop Dreams, uh, at least with Saint Joseph's. Um, with that institution, 
even though they say they're concerned with the uh, well-being and welfare and future of, of the student uh, athletes there, it's not altogether clear that they are. I, I think it's much more of a transactional thing there. And if, if the student athlete gets hurt or injured or so forth, they're pretty willing to cut him loose. Um, if you, there's, we see William Gates because he is this one in a million talent. They're giving him everything, everything. because right. of that specifically. If yeah. he wasn't that good, they do what they did with Ag. They'll just exactly let him go. Right, and I don't get the impression from this film and what I've read about the Masonic Home and uh, Rusty Russell and Doc that uh, they would do something like that. They're committed now you might say they're just legally committed because they're after all a, a an orphanage and there's probably restrictions on what they can and can't do but i don't know about that but you, you get the very distinct impression that they quite literally consider that group of boys family and they're willing to do whatever they need to do for the benefit of those boys and uh like you saw, interestingly, with the Bear Bryant example in Junction Boys, you see the powerful influence that, that uh, they had later in life. And a lot of these guys went on to be great successes in various fields. Um, were de- many were decorated war veterans. Yeah. Um, were also, one, I forget, was part of the Manhattan Project. Yep. I forget which one that was, but yep. they were also successful teachers. And we... DeWitt Coulter was a star at Army football. He played a little bit with the Giants, yep. but the main character I want to bring up is Hardy Brown, who was yeah. the inspiration really behind Jim Dent writing this book, which led to the movie. Yeah, He was a very hard hitter. I mean, in the book, it's more described how a lot of players were almost afraid of him just because like, he injured people. I think today he probably would face suspension or even expulsion from football because those hits were probably dirty that whole part where the one guy said he's hitting so hard i want to see if he's wearing metal plates that did happen that happened but i think if i'm not mistaken that didn't happen at the high school that happened when he was a pro with the san francisco 49ers I'll have I'm to pretty check, sure i just read that i'm pretty sure they just took that and <laughs> moved but uh, testament to his ability to hard hit and you have to remember that was that era, man. You know, that, that mm-hmm. era of uh, guys that did hit hard and hit illegally by today's yeah, standards. Yeah, a favorite story of the Art Donovan book is about a guy named Bill Pellington who would keep a cast on his arm even well after it healed because he would like to clothesline players. Yeah. And Donovan said he was so afraid he would actually kill somebody on the football field. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, Dick Knight Train Lane from our Detroit Lions. Clothesline neckties, (laughs) as he would call them. Same sort of thing. Oh, my goodness. But, But, like, he was Hardy Brown. We see, like, we talked about both in the book, that he arrives in the home of fresh after the, the death of his father and his mother abandons him. So you always see he's very... Always the violent one. In the yeah. in the book, he's more of the leader, but everybody kind of thought he was a bully. Yeah, like they didn't want to cross him, so he was like, "I'm taking charge. Anybody has anything, you can you know fight fight it out with me." Yeah, and he just and even football, like NFL players were afraid of him. There was an NFL Network top ten of violent hitters. He was rated number five, I believe. Bob Waterfield, the player for the rams in the 40s and 50s he got hit in a car accident once and his remark was i didn't know hardy brown was in town <laughs> but it you feel that maybe his coming from that violent past of the death of his father was this football a way of 
releasing his aggression and anger at the abandonment of his father and his mother. Yeah, that's probably a safe assumption to say that is the case. And even though he did uh, hit, uh, uh, by today's standards, with abandon, we might say, uh, it uh, it still gave him an opportunity to channel that violence in a way that was more, as it were, constructive, uh, but also in a way that domesticated him to some extent. Because you do kind of wonder what would have happened to Hardy Brown if football did not come into his life. Because you could kind of see he's very angry. He's ticked off at the world. He's just a classic guy kind of being set up to get into legal trouble, uh, be it a life of crime or just getting in a fight after uh, uh, drinking too much at a bar or something and accidentally killing somebody. He's not going, he's not going down a good road. And I think uh, Rusty Russell recognized that danger in him. And so did doc. And they said, well, we've got to do something to uh, channel this guy's uh, uh, forces. If not just for our own selfish purposes and having a hell of a football team that people are afraid of more importantly, uh, for his own well-being in in the longer run, and that ended up happening. I mean, he ended up having a, a great career, and uh, as far as I know, after football, he did fine just as well too. So, uh, again, um, the, the tremendous amount of influence these guys had on uh, these boys when they were kids just has amazing ramifications later in their lives, and uh, I think the film does a good job of. of showing that and how how uh, trying it was at the time um, for uh, the the coaches and Doc uh, to pull this off. Yeah, and we talked and, a little... Oh, go ahead. No, and I was just going to say, um, and it does a good job of portraying the formation of the team itself. Any good team also kind of self-governs and self-polices. And you see that camaraderie develop. Uh, between people that share adversity and they start thinking of we instead of me. And you see that developing in that team itself where they start looking out after each other more than anything else. And uh, in the long run, it it benefited them all. Um, And that's what kind of I found very jarring about the last scene, the first scene and, and almost the last scene where they're in the locker room at this championship game that actually never really occurred. Um, no, that did. Um, it was they were fighting for the states, and there wasn't this miraculous trick play that stopped one shard at the one yard line. But they were driving. They got to the goal line, but they just couldn't punch it in. Now, this was time. a state championship game. I believe so. They never yeah. won state, but I believe they yeah. got to the state finals, but yeah. they just could never win it. Okay, I thought they. I thought this was a uh, a scene based on a, a regional playoff. But anyway, uh, the thing I found jarring about it is they're. They are uh, jumping down each other's throat, accusing each other of not playing well for the team and so forth in that scene, which is supposed to be relatively late in the development of the team. And I found it to be out of character for the team, given the rest of the I, film. I, it's the cliche, the team's at their lowest, and the coach has got to give a rousing speech at halftime. This is the uh, Kurt Russell, Herb Brooks, uh, this is your time. Now go out there and take it from Miracle. It's that yeah, typical. Yeah. But they, they have to take the team completely out of character because they've spent a great deal of time building up uh, the portrayal of the team as being this camaraderie 
this unit that has cemented camaraderie and thinking of we instead of me, and all of a sudden they're all thinking me, and it just it struck me as implausible. And I think maybe you're right; they're trying to set up the great speech. Um, but that kind of worked at cross purposes, I think, with the overall theme of the film. Yeah, and you we were talking um, just about how like the, the the adversity they had to go through. Now we there was that scene when they were threatening to get kicked out of the class one A or whichever the high the highest grade of high school yeah. football in Texas yeah. because of the um, they lied about there was Hardy Brown is older than eighteen. Now that I don't think it was Hardy Brown, it was another player, but there was a part where they were kicked out. Yeah. And, but President Roosevelt never intervened on their behalf, but there was a lot of outcry. Um I forget the guy's name, but the guy who runs the Fort Worth Star. Yeah. He's in um, he's in this movie, but that's a real life guy, and he was a big fan Eamon of Carter. Eamon Carter, that's yeah. his name. Yeah. And he led a lot he made he Ran a lot of press talking about the outrageous decision for that. There was a lot of outrage from fans, and eventually they caved in and reversed the decision. Yeah, and the the film gets it right as far as I know with that particular player. Uh, I don't think it was Hardy Brown. It was another player. Somebody else. And it was somebody they had to. He was actually over the age of 18. They had to kick him off the team, but they were able to get back in. Right, and it it was through no fault of the schools. The schools weren't trying to pull the wool over the... Yeah, this is not Bishop Sycamore. <laughs> yeah, right, right. So, uh, you know, and again, that's that's a it's a choice of the filmmakers. Once once you decide to make it an hour and a half long, or I know it's two hours, two hour long uh, feature length film instead of a series, you have to do some telescoping and compromise and, and uh, combinations of actual historical characters into one person. Um yeah, and it, the, uh, one of the complaints I have about the film is they, they've telescoped too much into yeah, the story all just of a single place year. In, yeah, one it, season to where it gets a little implausible. They get they get good at football very quickly, um, quite literally between week one and week two. All of a sudden, they're better. yeah. Week one, yeah. they're Bishop Sycamore. Week two, there might as well be Alabama Crimson Tide. Yeah, so that 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 struck struck that also struck me as implausible, but. I was willing to kind of swallow it. I actually kind of enjoyed the film um, because it does, I think, touch on that that theme of coaching and mentorship and uh, the positive force of paternalism in in and, uh, in cases uh, uh, of extreme adversity. Um, on the one hand, with the with the adults in the story, and then the other hand, uh, that development of team. Uh, a team and camaraderie and uh, something deeper than friendships that lasts a lifetime. You know, they do a good job at portraying both of those things. And I really actually like the interactions between Doc and Rusty. I think that's the they all, they didn't need the they didn't need Doc to be uh, providing narrative. I, I think you're right about that. But the two characters, they're great. They're great, and and I, I like that Rusty's concerned with Doc's drinking, and you know takes the takes the flask away from mm-hmm. him, and it's a little paternalism even there. You know, once again, Rusty is a father. I mean, he's functioning as a father here, even mm-hmm. even with his defensive core. Near the end of my questions, anything else you want to bring up? So we I talked a bit about uh, Martin Sheen. He also uh, Robert Duvall is also in this movie, and they have a conversation. And every, and in the back of my head, I kept waiting for Duvall to say. I love the smell of napalm in the morning. <laughs> yeah, I know. 
And I have to say, you know, um, of, of all the people in the film, the one that in terms of just the acting job that did impress me the most was Martin Sheen. I think he did a heck of a job as Doc. I, I forgot that this guy was Martin Sheen at several points. And he, he sounded like a Texan. Um, I think he was successfully able to mix in with the cast. Most of the cast that played the football team were local actors from the yeah. Fort Worth area. Luke Wilson, the head coach, he's from Texas. Yeah, and those those guys, you can hear their accents. They sounded authentic. And I was going, I, I asked myself, wow, are these actually Texans? And, uh, you know, after I watched it and read up on it, sure enough, they went out of their way to go film around Fort Worth and, and find local talent. And even in a couple of cases, found guys that looked like the original guys. I found that impressive. But Sheen fits right in. You you would not know. <laughs> He's... He ain't no Texan. Uh-huh. You know? Fort Worth. I'm still in Fort Worth. I'm gonna stop. I'll stop with the apocalypse now jokes. All right. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy at the Movies. You can find this podcast and more podcasts produced by the Stockdale Center by visiting the Radio Stockdale page at usna.edu. This program is hosted by Radio Stockdale. There you can also listen to their podcasts such as Ethics and the Naval Warrior and The Do-Over. If you like this podcast, you might be interested in my other podcast, Real Sounds. Reach episode I dedicate to classic movie soundtracks. That can be found online at thesoundofcinema.podomatic.com. So until next time, I'm Alex Baker. And I'm Sean Baker. Saying so long, be sure to catch us next time on Philosophy at the Movies.